biology. 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 Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today on the podcast, I was lucky enough to interview Marcel Dinger from the University of New South Wales. Unfortunately, a few technical errors in my inability to press the record button at the right time has meant that I have half an interview um, and I have apologized to Marcel about that. Um, so I'm just going to run you through the first half of the interview, which mainly just goes through some of the you know dot points from the syllabus, which will be important. Um, but the good thing is I didn't miss the part about his research and um, some more exciting things that he spoke about. So um, I hope you guys still get a bit out of this today. And again, apologies to Marcel if you're listening. Um, but hopefully hopefully it's still okay. All right. So first of all, I obviously started off by asking him about his background. And um, look, I, I won't try and replicate what he said about it, but he, he's been through many different fields and he's now the, uh, the head of biotechnology and biomolecular science at University of New South Wales. Um, and he's, you know, he's done quite a bit. He's published around 143 papers and he, he's been involved in many different fields. And he certainly knows a lot about different things and has some uh, very interesting connections, which hopefully is going to lead me to some more interviews in the future. Um, so we firstly spoke about the difference between coding and non-coding uh, DNA. And coding DNA, as you would know, hopefully, is the part of your DNA that you use in order to make stuff. So when we want to make something like hemoglobin, that's what we need in order to make the hemoglobin protein. The non-coding DNA is the region that does not make proteins, but they still have a use, which is what the uh, research was around Marcel's work. Now, the dot point itself for this one was all about assessing the significance of coding and non-coding DNA segments in the process of mutation. So when we look at mutation in coding versus non-coding DNA, in coding DNA, it's not too difficult to understand. When we change the code, we change the thing we're making. So if we make a modified um, a letter or a, a, a gene region, um, we might change the amino acids that are produced. And a good example of this is sickle cell anemia, which is where you change a single base letter and you produce a, a misformed hemoglobin. And that misformed hemoglobin then causes the sickling shape in the red blood cells. In non-coding DNA, it was a little bit different. So when I asked myself about the different regions in non-coding DNA, you can break it up into a lot of different parts. And there are parts that we know a lot about and there are parts that we still don't know much about. The parts that we do know about, um, in the interview we spoke about promoters and enhancers um, and silencers, and those regions are super important in the um, genes being not necessarily switched on, which is what Marcel said. It wasn't switching them on, it was promoting um, certain amounts of them to be produced, so almost like on a spectrum. So if you need more of something, you promote that uh, enzyme to, to make more of it. And so it wasn't a switch on or off, which is interesting because we hear that a lot about these non-coding regions being switches, but he described it being more like a, a range or a spectrum where it will attach when we need more and then there'll, there'll be more and it'll be enhanced if we need even more and more and more. And that was the idea that they're, they're more like regions for when we need certain things. Um, which was 
Again, uh, something that I didn't know. When we talked a bit more about some of the non-coding regions, we spoke about centromeres and telomeres. Centromeres being the midpoint of chromosomes that attaches the two. And these are non-coding regions of DNA, but are obviously very important for holding those chromosomes together and in the process of meiosis and mitosis. And telomeres we spoke about were the ends of the chromosomes that are also made of non-coding DNA. Now, those telomeres are usually repeated sequences of bases. Um, and we talked about the fact that as they break down, they're linked with things like aging. So they're meant to protect the end of our chromosomes. And as we get down those telomeres, as the cell replicates, the telomeres get shorter and shorter each time. We get down to the potential coding regions of those chromosomes, which again can have a, an effect. But even in those non-coding regions, we can have an effect. So we spoke about the fact that if we're not switching on those certain genes, then we're not going to get the necessary protein that we're making. And then we spoke a little bit about other regions like transposons and retrotransposons, which was super interesting. So uh, Marcel was explaining the fact that, you know, viruses have ways in which they can get into our DNA and insert their own DNA. And we have regions of our DNA that can kind of move around from one place to another. And then we went through the fact that you know, our genes and DNA are already made up of viral DNA. So uh, he explained the fact that a virus has sort of the minimal amount of information that it needs to get into the cell, and then it can hijack our DNA plus what it's already got in there for millions of years of evolution in order to make more of itself. So it's using those retrotransposons, those things that have been placed there in the past in order to make more of itself. So another really awesome way in which we have variation, these are uh, these jumping genes, these genes that can move around or that have been implanted by those viruses causing changes, increasing variation and then leading to that, you know, selection advantage, hopefully, <laughs> if it doesn't cause negative or detrimental mutations. Now, when I went through and talked about how it affects each region differently, I asked Marcel, and this is where the interview cuts back in, if there are any non-coding regions that give, you know, a, a specific disease like sickle cell anemia. So we know that a single base change can cause a single protein to be different and then all those proteins that come out are going to be different. And I said, well, is it the same in the non-coding regions, do we have um, that single base change leading to an entire gene region being switched on or off differently or, or those proteins being produced in lower numbers? So this was the response that he gave to that question and then the interview will flow as normal. So again, guys, I apologize for the bit of the, the brief intro I had to give here and to Marcel, uh, but hopefully you enjoy the rest. I certainly found it very interesting. All right, enjoy. And that's partly because we don't really understand exactly how those... Um, I guess what the so-called what the the structure function relationship is between uh, uh, between the non-coding DNA and uh, and what it does. So at its most simplest, perhaps might be an area like a promoter, which has a, a very uh, a specific sequence that that causes binding to a particular protein. And if that you know sequence is perturbed, then the protein won't bind, and then you know the effect is changed. But most of these things won't cause a severe phenotype in the way that, you know, just say something like sickle cell, sickle cell anemia or, uh, say, cystic fibrosis and all of those kinds of so-called, you know, monogenic diseases where one base change uh, seriously damages a protein and causes a severe kind of a, a, a severe phenotype, you know, a real a big change in, in something. You don't get that happening so much with non-coding DNA. And what you'll actually see is much smaller changes. So you might get a base pair change, and it might just make something subtly different to how it was. Um, 
but unlikely to actually cause a you know a, a, a disease as such. It's super interesting, and um, I guess it's good to know that it's not going to have you know a significant effect necessarily in these regions, and that probably adds to the variation that we get. Um, and I know you've done a lot of research in this area, particularly with um, long long chains, is it, of uh, non-coding RNA and, and uh, non-coding DNA. Um, so what is your sort of research in that area and what are some things you've, you've found out? Yeah, so the um, I did my postdoc really studying long non-coding RNA. And so what we did is we looked at, uh, as I said at the, at, at the start of this podcast, you know, um, looking at, at how these these RNAs were expressed, how much they were expressed, where and when, and and so on, and then trying to connect those back to um, to functions. So probably one of the, an example of of that is that we looked at uh, the expression of non coding RNA during embryonic mouse cell development. So what you do there is that you take an, um, mouse embryos and you allow them to differentiate for a few days. And then we, we took uh, extracted RNA at a, at a few time points along the way. And then we sequence all of the RNA in those samples using this so-called next, next generation sequencing. So this is what they call transcriptomics, which is kind of the, um, the, the RNA version of genomics. So you're sequencing the whole transcriptome and looking at, at everything there. And then, so then what we did is we were able to identify all of these these long non-coding RNAs that were very specifically associated, they were ones that were switched on or turned off at very specific times during the development of these embryos. And so what that told us is that that these were RNAs that were um, potentially involved in in driving and, as I said, attenuating these um, uh, these very very intricate. Uh, developmental processes. So we studied those, and then we uh, looked at, at individual examples and candidates of these, and 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 really tried to dissect and explore the functions of these. What, what you can kind of think of as a new, a new genes in a way, you know, they don't encode protein, but they certainly have have functions and uh, that are akin in many similar ways to, to to the way that proteins have. So yeah, that was really what I, um, I, I spent a number of years working in that in that area. Super cool. And with the function you said that they have, those long coding RNAs, what, what were some of the functions you found that they had? Or is it um, a bit more uh, unclear about this specific function? Well, so uh, w one of the areas that, that looked increasingly clear around functions of long non, long non coding RNAs was their impact on, on regulating epigenetic modifications. So epigenetic modifications are these sort of other, is the is the kind of the um, modifications that are made to the genome in 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 effect uh, open or close chromatin, which is the um, um, the way that DNA is packaged. So when DNA's packaging changes, it also changes how accessible it is to things like RNA polymerase and how it gets expressed. And so what we found is that long non-coding RNA seemed to have a role in in that kind of um, chromatin organization. So it's effectively how DNA itself and the genome itself is um, is packaged up. Uh, so yeah, that was a that was one of the functions at least that we were able to to um, I guess expose through through what we did. And again, super cool. So you mentioned epigenetics and it's something that has come up a few times just in, in biology. Do you want to explain sort of what that term means and why it's important? Um, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. sure, Luke. And I realize I opened a can of worms there when I <laughs> used the word epigenetics. Okay. So um, epigenetics is kind of, it's a word to describe everything that's outside of the genome. So when we think of just 
pure genetic information where A's, T's, C's, and G's, um, and and that's it. That's the genome. But these those um, um, base pairs or those characters can also be modified so that you can get bases that are, are methylated, which is a chemical modification to the DNA itself. You can also, on top of that, get changes to the to the nucleosomes, which are the things that package up DNA. Um, and that's when I, when I talk about chromatin, that's what those things are. Those are the proteins that actually wrap DNA up. And now those proteins themselves can also be modified chemically. And so you'll get, you know, um, biochemical changes happening to those nucleosomes or histones. Um, and that's also a, a, a different form of epigenetic change. But these are things that can be inherited from one cell to the next um, uh, and are a really important part of, of what makes every cell unique. We've all got the same genome, or all cells, sorry, have all got the same genomes in them, um, but they've got different epigenomes, and that's what defines the difference between, for example, you know, a white blood cell in a, in a, in a blood cell, in a, sorry, in a cell in a muscle or in, in, in the brain or, or whatever. They've all got different epigenetic programs that are running that are basically um, which genes are turned on and off in those, in those cells. Super cool. So that's like how the uh, DNA can be affected in the lifetime of an individual. Is this research where you sort of head down that Lamarckian path where you can change an individual in a lifetime and that gets passed on? Or am I in a, in a different term? I'm thinking of something else here. No, so you, you certainly get that influence happening within an organism. So, if, you know, obviously, you know, every uh, every organism starts as a single cell, and as each of those cells divides, they they become um, unique in their characteristics. What you, I guess, what we're talking about is that possibility of those experiential changes that cells have, and whether or not those changes can be inherited onto 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 a following generation. So, when egg cells and sperm cells are made. They too are ultimately um, a product of the environment that they were exposed to, uh, and that can cause epigenetic changes, which is where this idea of of, of changes can be passed on, or where the experience of of you know of an individual can be um, passed on in some form or other um, to a subsequent generation through these epigenetic changes um, that are, that are recurring. So the extent of that is still is still not not well understood. But there are certainly some quite well characterized examples um, done in, uh, in 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 animal studies, for example, where um, where you, do, you you can get see changes in in offspring uh, as a result of uh, environmental exposure to the to the mother, for example. Amazing, and it's something probably you know Darwin unfortunately didn't have access to the tools to put yeah. the uh, epigenetics into into his theory. But um, I, I certainly think it's a, an area that's going to be um, sort of exploding in the future in terms of what we know and, and how we can influence genes for for the next generation. So with um with the things that you're doing, do you think there's um anything interesting that you sort of like students to know about DNA and coding and non coding DNA that you found really interesting? I guess that the, the the biggest message I would send out is is really how little we understand about the function of the genome. You know that that um, the beginning of the story is really what we understand about. You know we understand the language of of the code that um, that that makes protein, but we understand very little about the language of the rest of the genome. And I think there's there's this a, a huge amount there to be still to be uh, to be revealed or to be decoded as such. You know, we've got this crude terminology of where we've kind of got this view of the genome as being coding or non-coding, but really I think, you know, the, the complexity is far, far greater than that. 
uh, and it's 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 breaking up and deciphering that language that I think is the the challenge for um, future generations of scientists. Um, it's it really is like a solving a, a puzzle or a, a you know a sort of like being a, a cryptographer or a decryptographer of uh, of life's language and trying to understand what it all means. And sounds like for you students listening, that is a sort of great place to head to because there's lots to discover. So um, really interesting to hear how much there is to know and to, and to find out. Uh, certainly some place where you could make new discoveries that could change the world. Now, in terms of your industry and, and what you're working in um, and with at the moment, what's something that might be exciting you? It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, in your, in your faculty or anything like that, but what's something that you see maybe day to day or or coming up as being interesting or exciting oh it's actually my my current research is um is super exciting like at least i think it is so we've <laughs> discovered a um a different part that parts of the genome are not necessarily folded as um into a double stranded form into you know that you know the classical double helix but are actually uh fold into different structures and so dna can form all sorts of different you know knots and different shapes and things. So we've di- we, we've discovered this one particular way that DNA can fold into a so-called eye motif. And these eye motifs, we we again, this is a, an example of where technology allowed us to do something new. We could develop these antibodies that were specifically uh, um, targeted towards this particular structure of DNA, and we then we were able to find where um, where where in the genome. Um, these eye motif structures would form, and and now we can actually look in live cells and start to see when they would form as well, and under what situations and scenarios you'll get DNA folding into these um, these un- these these unusual structures, um, and that's a really exciting area. We don't know to what extent you know nature has exploited this um, this other confirmation that DNA can 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 assume, um, and. Uh, uh, but I think it's it's certainly looking very likely. Like th- th- this is another, I guess uh, you know, part of the story of how we um, decipher uh, the sort of language of the genome by seeing it through this this prism of what other structures it forms and when it forms them. So that's a really interesting area, I think. That's super amazing. Like that you've discovered a, an entire new structure. I mean, when we watch all the documentaries on uh, Watson and Crick and Franklin, uh, we always, uh, you know, marvel at this double helix structure they've, they've discovered. And it's um, amazing the first time I've heard of, of additional structures um, and some really cool, again, technology you're talking about there. So we'll mention sort of antibodies later in the um, in the syllabus, but it's interesting how you said you modified them to, to, to move to the area of that DNA. So, or, or, how does that work? Like, I don't understand that process, or is that again way over my head? <laughs> it's it's certainly a a, um, a pretty sophisticated process, but in a in a really really short way, what, what we can do with antibodies is that you you um, build up these so called libraries. So we, we we would build a library which creates like say a billion different types of antibody, right? Which um which can potentially target all these different types of structures and things. So we create these really, really diverse libraries of antibodies, which is just exactly the same as what our our own body is doing, except now we're doing it artificially. So we're doing this just in a lab. We create antibodies with massive diversity, and then we um, we we use screens to see um, like a literally just like a, it's a screening process, and you find which um, you select antibodies that bind to and that specifically bind to. Um, 
to certain shapes of things. So in this case, we're sort of training this library or selecting a library that only binds to this I motif structure. So this is a, a, a pretty novel thing to be able to do. And then once we've once we've worked out or found an antibody that only binds to I motif, doesn't bind to other types of DNA, doesn't bind to other proteins, doesn't bind to anything else, just binds to those, then we can um, we can put those inside cells. We attach those those antibodies to a fluorescent marker so that they light up. And then we can see, um, so it's like a beacon, and then we can see where in the uh, where in the genome these things are binding. So it's a, it's a really a very very cool technology that um, basically allows you to very specifically target really almost anything, not just a you know an unusual DNA structure. You can you can make antibodies to pretty much bind specifically to almost anything. That sounds yeah very useful. I imagine especially in the medical world for uh, for treating disease, um, if you can bind yeah. to anything that that would be along those lines of precision medicine that I keep hearing uh, individuals from the Garvin and I think yourself speak about this, uh, you know, unique individualized form of medicine, which um, I know that Lauren and, and, um, and Vanessa are very excited about, um, which, you know, you guys see this every day and then the progression that's happening and, and the rest of us are just waiting to probably receive it when we get a bit older, but uh, it's good to know the progress is happening. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one more thing I want to ask you before you finish. What do you think the function of those um, eye motif, like this is obviously a bit of a, you know, a, a guess at this point, or you might know, but what do you think their function might be and, and their role in the DNA? Or is this just... Yeah, dark? so um, they, they look like they can function as, as like as a molecular switch. So um, again, a little bit like promoters and enhancers and those things that I described before, we think that these um, these structures can form to either like so when the I motif structure forms in a in a certain condition um, that it can bring and recruit proteins to to those parts of the genome, which can then in turn um, uh, uh, change the expression of genes. So again, I think that they have a role in regulating gene expression uh, in a in a very particular way. It actually provides an almost more of a mechanistic explanation as to how it is that you know a protein will will go to a particular part of the of of the genome. And it's actually we think it's actually because those the shape of the genome in those in those um, in those areas is actually different because it's folding in a different way which is because they're folding into these different structures. So it's a way almost of differentiating from all of the double-stranded stuff is that you get bits that uh, form these different shapes. Do you have a, a, an image of this, that's something that's you know publishable, of this I-motif structure? Is it is it just yeah. molecular? No, I sure do. Now there's, there's lovely pictures of these. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> structures of these have been, um, have been solved, so you can see exactly how they, how they compare to a double-stranded structure. I'll definitely yep. have to get a copy of that and and uh, and put it up on the Facebook page for everybody to see. Uh, very interesting. Um, I guess before I ask you sort of uh, where people can get in contact with you if they need to, what's maybe a piece of advice that you would offer students looking to study in the field of science and biology? So I think one of the areas that's really growing um, very fast in biology is that biology has become, and science broadly, but um, biology in particular, has really made the transformation to becoming more of a data science. Um, you know, not exclusively, and that's not to say that that's um, to the exclusion of, of, of I guess, traditional um, experimental uh, laboratory science but data science is an area that's it has just become huge and this is you know with the advent of genomics where you're looking at big data 
you know, the size of a human genome, three, you know, three gigabases of data. Um, is it, it's, you know, you're really chewing through a lot of stuff. This is not something you can do by eye anymore. This is something where you're really, you know, you're, you're needing to train computers to, um, to analyze data. So having, um, I guess, computer skills, programming skills, coding skills, um, uh, really strong background and knowledge and statistics uh, becomes incredibly important, I think, for for making real advances in biology. So, yeah, that would be my advice: is that if you're interested in moving into um, into research, so I said it doesn't even you know whether you're going to do a PhD or not. It's um, it really is an incredibly valuable skill as being able to um, analyze and interpret big data. That seems like where the uh, the cutting edge science is is going on. Um, and it, and it can be in in combination with field work too. I know that like what uh, Vanessa was doing um, uh, in Africa was super interesting, where she was combining, you know, uh, going out and collecting real specimens from real people, and then using that data science to to produce some amazing results. So certainly a lot of uh, like you said, a lot of potential there for for new discoveries, and for students to uh, to to invest their time and energy into something that's going to be beneficial. Uh, look, I just want to say thank you for joining me today and uh, I'll ask you, is there anywhere um, that people can find you if they want to get in contact um, and ask you some questions perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find in terms of on the um, uh, on the UNSW uh, we- website. You can just search for Marcel Dinger and my email address is m.dinger at unsw.edu.au. Too easy. Well, thanks again for joining me today and um, hopefully we can catch up soon or again and talk about uh, some more of the biotech stuff that you're involved in. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'd love to do that, Luke. And thanks again for the, for the chat. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Make sure you check out stemreactor.com.au if you want to get some biotechnology at your school. That's stemreactor.com.au.